Good morning, Living Stoners. Is that something you want to do? <laughs> I see a lot of people shaking their heads. Uh, that is the scariest thing, uh, to be able to, to stand over the cliff and to look down at the water. I've done that once, twice actually. It's the craziest thing. Um, and it's been several years ago, and there, I know there's one person in the audience that was, hi, Rochelle. Yeah, you were one of those individuals that coerced me off over to the edge of that cliff. Actually, Grayson Lake, not our video, um, and not nearly as pretty as some of those guys jumping off like that. But when you have six young ladies, college students, who say, hey, Lowell, come over to Grayson Lake, and we're going to go cliff jumping 50 feet. Um, Your fear uh, is like kind of clashes and crashes with this, I am not going to be outdone. You know, you've got that pride that just comes in there. But it did not look that pretty. In fact, it was, it, I felt more like a, a paralyzed crab jumping off of that cliff like this. And no words, no words out of my mouth, no scream, no nothing. It was like, ah! I survived. I survived. Join us, it's fun. Come over here at the edge and uh, jump in with us. Picture yourself there. Think about a moment or a time in your life where you have faced your greatest fear, and you knew you had to stand up in front of somebody, or you had to be honest about this one thing, or whatever it might be. What was that feeling like? Imagine yourself right there in that moment. We've all been there, right? Standing on the edge of something we fear, our heart pounding in our chest, that lump that just kind of rises in your throat and you about choke, your knees locked or knocking. Those of you who were baptized last week, life still happens. And you may feel like, you know, I've jumped off of the edge and I've made this huge commitment, but what have I gotten myself into? Or maybe taking that final exam that will confer on you a degree that you have been working all of your life on and you've studied as hard as you can and you, you don't know if you're going to make it. Or that interview with, uh, with that owner or that boss, the dream job that you have longed for, and this is the last one. And you know if you, if you sweat or if you say the wrong word or if you don't look right, uh, it might not happen. We're standing in front of a crowd of people to speak. And, and you, you wonder, are the words going to come out? Am I going to stand up there and, be, and freeze? Or perhaps it was reciting the vows. And saying the I do's that will change your life forever. And you've been gripped by that fear. Holding your firstborn. And you have now entered into the, may, the big responsibility of parenthood. All of these things are like standing on the edge, right? Should I dive in or should I stay on shore? And sometimes in all of these things, and you could probably, you've got your own fear. You've got, maybe there's a whole bag of them that you're dealing with this morning. Those fears take over the fear of failing, the fear of a change, the fear of being exposed for who we really are before others. These fears sometimes debilitate us and keep us from realizing Life to the full, as Jesus describes it in the Gospels. Or that abundant life that he assures that you and I will have. Those fears keep us from realizing those things. And they keep us 
from entering into life-giving and authentic relationships, which is what this series that we are entering to in the next three weeks is all about, this scary close, not, uh, not living the act or this false way that we are living, but entering into honest relationships with God and with others. And so we're going to talk about that, what that looks like in intimate relationships this morning. And next week, we're going to talk about what that looks like in community and how it applies to our relationships with others in our small groups, in our ministry groups, even here at Living Stones. And then we're going to talk about how uh, diving into those relationships, how that affects bringing the kingdom into the world uh, the following week. But if you and I are going to enter into authentic relationships with one another, we must understand that if we do anything good in life, anything that we're excited about, anything that we love, we must first love ourselves. We must first love ourselves. Another way to put it that would be we need to know who we are. We need to, I need to know who I am. You need to know who you are in Christ. And what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like for us to look at two closely related Old Testament characters King Saul and King David. Saul was chosen as king because the nation of Israel wanted a king. They have been led for 350 years as they've entered into the promised land by judges. And, it, and the way it started was a time, uh, it was a cycle of prosperity where, where they were living in tune with God's will and God prospered them to the point where they forgot who they were and they started worshiping the idols and the gods of the nations of the people that they were supposed to kick out of the promised land. And they lived in squalor, and eventually God left them. He removed his presence from them, and the nations would take over in their lives and put them in a place of oppression to the point where the Israelites would call out to God and say, God, where are you? And he would raise up a judge who would preach and who would teach and would lead them to a point of repentance and they would come back to God. And after 350 years of doing this over and over and over again, the people thought, well, in our wisdom, I think what we need is a king. We need a king like all of these other nations. Why are we so different than all the other nations around us? We should have a king. The king will tell us what to do and we'll follow after that king. And so God raised up the first king and he used uh, Samuel, and Samuel went and anointed this king, and his, his name was Saul, and he was impressive. He was, he was that individual that stood out in the crowd. In fact, the scriptures say that Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. If anybody looked more kingly, it would have been Saul, and he is the one that was appointed. However, his life became like that of the Israelites over and over again. First, he followed after God, and he, he won great victories for the, for the nation of Israel, and they'd taken, oh, taken over the land, but then he got full of himself, and that prosperity and that success in battle led him to a point where he began to not trust in God, and, he not, and began not to trust in himself. And his fears took over to the point where he started to try to rely on the idols of the nations around him. He did that to cover over the lack of his trust in God and a lack of trust in himself. And finally, Samuel, after many years of Saul's corrupt leadership, had had enough. And so had God. 
In fact, God would say of Saul, I, have, I regret that I have put him on the throne. So in 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, we begin reading this interaction between Samuel and Saul. And we read, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? This was Samuel's question to Saul. And these were the words that God was telling Samuel to tell Saul. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? See, Saul, you keep coming back and forth. You keep wavering between following the idols and following God, and you're putting on this false face before me. You go into the temple and you make sacrifices and you repent, but are you real with them? These are all just a show. And if we are trying to impress God or trying to impress other people, that's false righteousness. We are also trying to convince ourselves that we are someone that we really are not. Samuel will go on to say to Saul, to obey. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is the better, of, better than fat of rams. And what will happen to those who try to live this lie? For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you, Saul, as king. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Well, when I read that scripture, I, was th- I thought to myself, what word was it? What word was it that Saul rejected? Was it one specific thing that God had said to Saul? Or was it a scripture that he held in his mind? I think it was all of it. (laughs) I think it had a starting point. It was, this is essential, this is central to Saul's failure. And I think it's also the starting point to authentic relationships for us. In Deuteronomy, Moses writes this in chapter 6. These are the commands and decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So as they are standing at the edge, as it were, as they're standing on the edge of the cliff, getting ready to dive into what God had asked them to do, to go over and take over the promised land, this is your land. This is your heritage. This is your inheritance. I'm going to be with you as you go. And they're standing on the edge. He's saying, do this. Do this. So that you, your children, and your children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you. And so that you may enjoy long life here, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it will go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. What a great responsibility. To not only think about the baby that you're holding in your arms right now, but the generations that will follow after you, you are creating a legacy and a heritage by the way that you live at this point. And then Moses will write this. And this has become a prayer that the Jewish people will remember. The little Jewish children would learn from the very beginning of entering into the synagogue. They would recite the Shema. I'd like for us to read that together, the ver- the, the, this, uh, this verse that you see on the screen. Let's recite this together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, 
with all of your soul and with all of your strength. That's the Shema. These commandments that I give you today are to be in your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Uh, I had a friend of mine uh, came back from Israel, and he, he brought me a gift. I've always wanted one of these. It's called a mezuzah, which literally means doorposts. And in a Jewish household today, if you walk into a Jewish household, you'll see a little box like this made out of wood or metal. The, inside of it is a slip of paper that has what we just recited together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in this little box are two holes that I will take a couple nails or screws, and I'm going to put that on the doorpost of our home. And this is a reminder to us, as it was a reminder to them, that every time I walk into my house... Every time you walk into my house, that God has blessed this place and is present. And I remember not only who God is, but that he has created you and I in his very image to reflect his glory to the world. And that my identity is directly connected to who God is. And ultimately, being who God created Saul to be was not enough for him. This was the word that Saul had rejected. That God was number one and that we should love him with all of our being and that our identity should be connected with him. Saul did not trust who God created him to be. He forgot the word of God. And by trying to be someone he was not created to be, he rejected God's word. So what he tried to do was to hide himself. He tried to hide his real self because he was ashamed of the image that God had created him. Saul created a false self that he put on stage in front of all of the other people. And he spiraled into rejection from God and his people and eventually into destruction. In fact, Samuel's words will read in chapter 13, but now your kingdom, Saul, will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader over his people. Because you have not kept the Lord's command. The encouragement to us from the life of Saul and his failings is this. We must love ourselves. In other words, we must know who we are. And if we can't love ourselves, then we are rejecting God and his image that he has stamped on each and every one of us. But not only that... If we're going to enter into authentic relationship with God and other people, we must understand this. Human love is not conditional. Real human love is not conditional. I want you to say that with me. I want you to get it. Human love is not conditional. Let's take the example from God. To replace Saul... God has chosen a man after his own heart. To replace Saul, God has come to Samuel and said, I want you to go to this place. Listen to these words from 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long 
Will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will surely kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and appointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Samuel looks at Jesse's sons as they parade before him, and he says, look at these Olympians. Look at, look at those muscled bodies. Look at those individuals. They look like they could be kings. They are so impressive. It almost gives me, maybe it gives you, the picture of growing up when, when, you were, when, when you're choosing teams for pickup baseball or something like that. I hated that. I hated that because I was the short, skinny kid in our neighborhood. And I had no athletic ability, hardly at all, but I loved to play baseball. And I would stand in line, and they would pick this person, and then the next team would pick this person. And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, please don't let me pick, pick last. Because when you get to the last person, they don't even say your name. You just know where you're going. And little David... While he looked okay, he was still the youngest. He may have even been the short, skinny kid. He may have had some athletic ability, but not nearly like his brothers. And he certainly did not have Jesse's approval because he wasn't among the first of them to be paraded before Samuel. And Samuel didn't even think about him. But God says to Samuel, see that kid at the end of the line? The one that you're probably going to leave to last I want him first. Choose him first. That's the one I want. That's the one I have chosen. Don't look at his outward appearance because I have created him. I know him. 
And you know what's best about that? Not only do I know him, but he knows me. He knows me. See, God's love is not conditional on my abilities. God's love is not conditional on my progress or how much I produce in the world. God loves me even before I start. And here's the other thing. He knows I will fail. He knows that you're going to fail. David, he knew. And David knew him. But we look at David's life and we see that it's not full, it's not the perfect life. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Oh, he was the one that did kill, uh, kill Goliath. But his life was full of failures over and over and over again. First off, the king is an imperfect husband. Moses' law tells us that we're only to have one wife. And David had several. And even though he had several wives, he looked off of his rooftop to the other rooftop, and he saw Bathsheba, and he lusted after her, and he had her brought into his home, and he slept with her, and Bathsheba had, was, became pregnant. Oh, now he's shaking in his boots because he knows, I've made a mistake, I've fallen down, so what am I going to do? Because not only is this woman beautiful, but that woman is my best friend's wife. Uriah the Hittite was listed among David's mighty men, his closest inner circle, and he took his best friend's wife as his own. So what I'll do is I'll scheme and I'll plot and I'll tell Uriah, come on in, you've you've been out busy fighting my battles, come on home, have a little bit of a Sabbath, a little bit of a rest, go in and celebrate with your wife. And so David sends Uriah home and he's But Uriah doesn't go in to meet his wife, doesn't go in, doesn't even embrace her. The scriptures tell us that Uriah slept in his doorway for three nights. And he doesn't go in to be with his wife that he hasn't seen forever. And so finally David says, what am I going to do? I know what I'll do. I'll just get rid of this problem from the very beginning. And so he calls his general, Joab, and he says, Joab, listen. Tomorrow, I want you to take Uriah, one of my strongest fighting men, and I want you to put him at the front line in the battle. I want you to put him up where the battle is fiercest, and when he is on that front line, I want you to call everybody back. And that's what he did. And Uriah, his best friend, was killed in battle. Later, Nathan will come to him, the uh, prophet will come to him, and, and expose David for all that he has done. This, this part of David's life is the stuff of the tabloids. This part of David's life is what makes presidential elections, you know, like they are today. <laughs> but overall, and, we probably, and I probably wouldn't vote for David <laughs> because I know what's happened in his life. And yet... David rightly deserves the title of Israel's greatest king. The arguments in the case against him reflect one main idea, human error. But this makes David relatable to you and I. He makes faults, and he's still loved and respected by God. He is blessed and held on a pedestal only because he recognizes his mistakes and looks for a change within himself. He is the definition of an honest man. 
And this is how he receives the title of a man after God's own heart. David takes the blame for his own wrongdoing, and he knows how to repent. He knows how to turn around when he makes a mistake and say, I screwed up. He does not make excuses or attempt to blame those who came before him. He doesn't blame his past. He doesn't blame his circumstances. He owns it himself. And even though his ancestors could be rightfully put in their places, such as Saul, David kept his distance and showed respect for Saul in his household. David did not dwell on his mishaps, but is transformed by his mistakes. When the light exposed David's flaws time and time again, instead of running away from the edge of the cliff, he dove in. He walked right to the eloquence of that light. David's flaws did not keep him from being a man after God's own heart. I secretly believe for myself that no one will love me if they know my secrets. Like if you knew what I've done in my life and what I hold in the secret places of my heart, this room would be completely empty. (laughs) My nature, I think our nature, is to shy away from honesty with others so that they will not see the flaws that we have. I'm reminded of Sam's words a few weeks ago. God's plan is not contingent on our righteousness. It has been put into place, and he will carry out his plan because he is faithful. And not only that, in the middle of my mess, God chooses me to carry out his plan. In the middle of your mess, God chooses chooses you to carry out his plan. And if we are going to have meaningful relationships with one another, we must trust that our flaws are the way in which we receive grace and not a hindrance. Think about that for just a minute. We all need grace, right? I come, we come into this place and we look for grace this morning. I need grace. I need an extra measure of his grace. But until I am able to be honest with my flaws, what's the grace going to stick to? I have to acknowledge those things. I've screwed up. I've messed up. And that's what I need grace for. Our flaws are the glue that binds us to the people that we love. And grace only sticks to our imperfections. Do you need grace this morning? Hello. (laughs) I do. I do. Those who cannot accept their imperfections cannot accept grace either. So if we're going to enter into authentic relationships, we must understand and know ourselves. We must understand that love is not conditional on who, what we are, what we think we are, on our flaws. And lastly, we must listen to the right voices. First Samuel 18 uh, is the passage I want to go to next. But here's David now. After he has killed Goliath, Saul takes him in. Because why wouldn't you? I mean, David just got done killing this, this giant that nobody else would go after. This little, this young man who did not have stature or anything to impress anybody about. He was, he was ridiculed by the army and by the Philistines. But Saul would take him in now that he has killed Goliath and say, Come on into my home. Be like one of my sons. Play your heart for me because it comforts me. And he comes into Saul's household. And uh, he enters into this relationship with Saul. 
In chapter 18, verse 1, it says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan, who was Saul's son. And don't pass over that too quickly, because Jonathan was Saul's son, who was heir to the throne. He had the rightful place of honor. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much, uh, he, he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. I don't want to pass over that thought because it's twice in those, in those couple of verses that the scripture records that Jonathan loved David as himself. What's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. We're all about loving our neighbor. That's part of our, 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 our mission here on the south side is to love those who are on our neighbor, in our neighborhood, know the people that are in our, in our neighborhood, to love them well, to, to give to them, and to show them Jesus Christ. But you can't do that unless you love yourself, unless you know what God has placed in you, that he is your redeemer and your salvation and your king and your Lord, we cannot go into the world and do what he asks us to do unless we do that. And so Jonathan has this authentic relationship with David because Jonathan knows who he is. He knows who he is not because he's Saul's son and because he is an heir to the throne, Not because he has any power or prestige, but because he knows who he is in God, and he is able to give love to David. That says, I don't care. I really don't care if I have the throne. It doesn't matter to me. I love you. I will put myself before you. And that's how we love other people. Later on, in a couple chapters, then Samuel will record this. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? So just... Without reading the story, the backstory is, is as David is in the palace playing the harp for Saul and comforting him as he is following after idols and witches and things like this, and as the people around are saying, Saul has killed his thousands and David is ten thousands. Oh, that irks Saul. <laughs> to the point where Saul was like, every time that little whippersnapper plays his harp, I just want to kill him. And so three times... He takes a spear and tries to stick David to the wall. And three times David runs away, and that's where we find him. And so he asked Jonathan, his best friend, the Saul's son, the heir to the throne, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. He has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only one step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Now see, at this point, Jonathan doesn't believe yet Saul is going to harm him, but he's going to remain committed to his promise to David and the covenant that he has for him that no matter what, I'm putting you first. No matter what, in this relationship, I am going to speak words of truth into your life. 
Am I willing to be hurt occasionally to turn the other cheek in order to have a long-term healthy relationship with other people? You see, it's a risk that we take when we enter into a relationship, right? Every relationship that we have that's worth the reward of intimacy is difficult because the reality is is that there are harsh people in the world, right? There are people that we enter into a relationship with and we don't fully trust them and we don't give themselves, ourselves completely over into that relationship because we know that there are those who are out there that see relationship as a means to an end or they're trying to get something out of that relationship. <laughs> I, unfortunately, I was told once in ministry uh, that I should hold people at arm's length and never fully trust people if I'm going to survive in ministry. In other words, people are going to hurt you, so put up a wall and protect yourself so that you will survive. And that was probably one of the most discouraging comments that I've ever had in my ministry. I was really taken back by that comment. Is that what Jesus really modeled for us? Is that what he taught us? In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus will say this to his disciples. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. In John 15, he'll write this about love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know the master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I have learned from my Father, I have now made known to you. Did you not choose me? But I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. The sacrificial giving of our lives to one another is the greatest expression of love that we can give in this world to lay aside our power and our prestige, to lay aside all of our wants and our desires to say, you come first before me. Our marriages would be stronger. Our families would be happier. Our churches would grow. Luke 9 will say this. Jesus will say this. And he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will, uh, will, will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and let lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. When I live like this, when you live like this, we hold our lives as if it was in an open hand, that it could be snatched from us at any time. And yet we are trusting a God that when we hold our, th- our lives in an open hand, that he, we're saying, I surrender to you, God. Do with me whatever you would have it. Even as a pastor, I want to do that with my life. 
It is the only way that God can truly use us. Yes, relationships sometimes hurt. Donald Miller, who is one of my favorite authors, written several books. Some of you may, may know, like Blue Like Jazz. Uh, one book that he has written, that's, which is the title of our sermon series, called Scary Close. Uh, he talks about the relationship with, throughout the book with his then-girlfriend who would become his wife and what God had to do in his life to basically humble him and knock away all his pride so that he could be married to this woman. Her name is Betsy. And they were sitting on a dock at a lake where he was writing, probably writing this book, actually, learning what God wanted him to learn. And he asked Betsy this question. I love questions like this. Would you rather swim in a pool, a lake, or in the ocean? And you're probably thinking in your mind, okay, I know where I'm going to swim. You know, I like a pool myself because it's clean most of the time. <clears throat> and Betsy said to him, what? I know exactly where I'd swim. I'd swim in the ocean because when I was a kid, I went out with my cousins and I swam in the ocean and we ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and the grit of the sand got in the peanut butter and jelly. We didn't really care about that. And we had fun swimming among the jellyfish in the ocean. Yeah, right? That's what I'm thinking. Some of you are like, yeah, jellyfish. The kids are like, but some of you are like, no way. And that's exactly what Donald said because Betsy said, well, where would you swim? Pool, lake, or ocean? And Donald said, well, I don't like the idea of swimming with the jellyfish, so I'd rather swim in the lake. And Betsy said, well, you don't understand. Trying not to get stung by a jellyfish is part of the adventure. Right? I mean, that's really what it's worth. She remembers everything that she, all, all of her childhood experience at the ocean because they all tried not to get stung by the jellyfish, and sometimes maybe we got stung. And she had deep relationships because in that together, they, they, they endured that adventure together. When you risk yourself on love, you are diving into the unknown. I don't know what's going to happen. When I enter into a relationship with you, you might burn me. You might say something behind my back that will just sting like that jellyfish. But I'll risk it. And you will too. There are real dangers in relationships. But there are mostly rewards. There are mostly rewards. Who are we going to listen to? What voice is, it go- is going to come forward most in the relationships that we appreciate the most? Listen to this uh, or watch this video. It drives home the point even better. Wow, the great Jesse Owens. Jesse, let's get back to basics. Why don't you swing from those bamboo poles over there, boy? That's right, Jacob Boos. Let's see you hang out those bars. Come on. Just like the game back in the jungle, huh? One more thing. Jesse, you want to tell me what was so interesting about the football team? I don't know, Coach. I just got distracted. Oh, you got distracted? See, that's what I'm talking about. You can't get distracted. You understand? All right, Larry. Finish this up now. I got boys who need a shower. Yeah, one sec, Coach. I'm not quite through yet. Sit down. Everybody sit down. Sit down. Larry, 
Hustle these niggas out of here. Yeah. yeah. Get them out. If you get your head turned by a few gorillas and warm-up pads here at home, what? how are you gonna hold up the mission? Is he calling gorillas? Coach Snyder. Hey, look at me. Coach Snyder. A lot of people show up for the Big Ten meet. Coach Snyder. How you gonna be on our side? You understand what that is? Do you? Do you? You gotta learn to block it all out. It's just noise. That's all this is. All this is noise. You hear me? They will love you or they will hate you. Does not matter. Either way, when you're out there, you're on your own. Jesse, Jeffrey, do you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, Coach, I hear you. Good. There are voices all around us that compete for our attention. There are lying voices that will tell us that we are something that we are not, that will try to derail us from the relationship that we have with God and make us believe that we are unworthy. But there's one voice, one voice that needs to rise over the din, and we need to drown out all the other voices so that we hear this. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. Listen to the right voices. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you, Father, for trusting us and and filling us with all of the nature of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for meeting us in our mess and giving us grace as we walk through relationships with other people. Teach us, God, to embrace intimate relationships with one another so that your son might be ministered into this world. Use us in this way, God, and keep telling us the truth and keep opening up our ears so that we can hear you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.